0: Church. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to 1 John uh, 4. That's where we'll be for our time this morning. But before I uh, jump into the sermon, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have loved us through the person of your Son, Jesus, in the finished work for us on the cross, uh, for sending your Spirit into... Um, into our hearts and lives, so we might live lives that reflect and honor Him. Um, and so now we want to, to experience that love in a real way. And so I pray you would help us to that end, Father, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in 1967, the Beatles sang, and all who were alive at the time still sang with them All you need is love. I'm not going to sing it, I promise, but uh, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. Nothing, no one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. That doesn't sound easy. You can make anything you want. You can save anyone you want. You can do anything you want. That sounds hard. How do we do that, Beatles? All you need is love. About three years after they wrote this song, they broke up as a band, publicly feuded with one another, and sued one another to get out of their contractual relationship. All you need is love and a really good lawyer. It's hard to love. And while four men from Britain might have a naive response to that, we all know you live life. Love is hard. And so we're about halfway through a series now we're calling uh, The Easy Yoke. And the dream or hope behind this series is that when you follow Jesus, the hope is that one day you'll automatically, easily, routinely do what Jesus would do if he were you. And to do that, to enter into that type of life, we said there are three really important things you need. You need teaching. You need this, this book to define the way we view life, more so than competing voices. Uh, Pastor Darrell will be speaking on that in a few weeks. Uh, we need, secondly, practices. We need habits and rhythms of life that are like Jesus' habits and rhythms for life. I'll talk on that in a couple of weeks. And then third, you need community. I talked about that last week, and I want to talk about that again this week. If you want to be, become a person who loves automatically and easily and routinely the way that Jesus loved— You need a people surrounding you, helping you become that kind of person. And the more I've read Jesus in the Gospels, the more I think his love is what makes him such a compelling person. That people flocked to Jesus. I think some of that was his teaching, I think most of that was he loved people in a way that they had never been loved before he restored their humanness. He treated every person he encountered like the human being that they were. And while he had the power to heal them and truly make them into the human being they were intended to be, his love is compelling. And I want to love like he loved. So how do we do that? And how, do, how does a community make us into that kind of person? So this morning we're going to talk about love, and I want to start with a question. Well, what does it even look like? How do we love well? Short answer it's not easy. It's very difficult. And one of the most helpful books I've read on, on just how to love, what does it look like on the ground, is a book called Bold Love by Old Testament theologian Shrimpher Longman and a Christian counselor named Dan Allender. And they basically say love. When it comes to other people, the hard side of love requires three things. Right, there's the easy side of love, which is people who love whatever you love, and that's easy, right? You have matching heart pillows with your initials on it, and you joke about the same things, and it's a life is good with them. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people that are real people that are hard to love. And Allender and Longman say, you need, a, you need three things to love people, The first thing is that love hungers for restoration. And this is how God's love is is framed for us by the Apostle John, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 of 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John says, this is love. God loved people who didn't love him. That's a love that hungers for restoration. God looks out at humanity and says, you are not lovers of me. You do not respond to me the way I want you to. And God's response to us in that moment was not to abandon us. but was actually to send us the most precious gift imaginable, his own son. So God loves those who do not love him, love hungers for restoration. And when you become a Christian, really your your foundational experience of life now is two things. One, you've experienced God's hunger for restoration for you. You know you didn't love God, and yet he gave you his son. And so your whole of life is now defined by the reality that God loved you when you didn't love him and yet pursued restoration with you anyway. Which then should mean, secondly, you and I become the same sorts of people who look out at the, the landscape of our lives, of people that we are distant from, or people who have wounded us, or we've wounded them, and we, we long to be restored to them. Because the Father was restored to us. He sought our restoration. We now become people seeking restoration with the world around us. That's not always what happens, is it? Someone harms us, someone does something we don't like. And our emotional immediate response is not hungering for restoration. It's a few other things. It's gossip. They've harmed me, now how can I destroy their reputation to other people? Sometimes too, we just we just don't say anything. We stuff it down deep thinking I'll never think about this again, which we do think about it again, or if we don't think about it, it's still governing our automatic responses to other people. We've just tucked away a a problem without seeking restoration. Or three, what I've experienced repeatedly again and again over the last especially few years, but throughout the entirety of my ministry as a pastor, is people just leave the church without any hunger for restoration, any desire to work through difficult questions any desire to understand the other person, we just leave. It's not how God loves us. I mean, John defines love this way. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. So love hungers for restoration first. So the people in your life that are difficult to love, that's where it starts. It's hungering for re- restoration. But secondly, love revokes revenge. Now, I just tried this out in Sacred Ground. It didn't work super great. So I probably should not try this now. But I'm, I'm a fool. So I'm going to try it. Uh, if you can, finish this phrase. Revenge is a dish best served. It's far more honest people in this room than there was People are like, I don't know what that means. What's, what's revenge? I've never heard of this. Um, <laughs> a, a few years ago, uh, Quentin Tarantino released uh, two movies back-to-back. Kill Bill, Volume 1, and Kill Bill, Volume 2. Because just one movie about revenge was not sufficient. He had to release released two uh, movies instead. But imagine instead the movie was called I Forgive Bill. Instead of Uma wielding a sword... She's at a table with her hands open and a meal prepared. I forgive Bill. How many of Americans would have flocked to that movie? There's a reason why there's a sword and somebody's going to get killed. And we're like, yes, I'd like to watch that. Because we love revenge, but love revokes revenge. I take that slide off. We've got to get the sword off the... Can't have a sword while you're talking about love. Uh, so John says, not just that God sent Jesus into the world, but to be a propitiation for our sins. So what does that mean? What's a propitiation. Um, so imagine you throw a, the best party you can possibly throw. And actually, my uncle kind of did this a couple weeks ago, end of, end of year party. And you, like, no expenses spared, best food you could afford, best musical act you could afford you invite all of your closest friends, and it's just, it's an amazing experience. Everyone's having a blast, and you invited me. And I come in, and I've just been spending the last few weeks meditating that the baseball season is ending, and for some reason, the Chicago Cubs, despite having an enormous amount of financial resource, decided to not be competitive this year <laughs> and pay players fair salaries, my own stuff. And so I'm a little, I'm a little hot already coming in, and then somebody decides to, to make the mistake of cracking a bald joke at my expense. And now I've just lost it, and I'm turning over the tables, and I go to the band, and I break a guitar on the stage, and I just start yelling random things because I'm, I'm angry, and people at your party are like, who is this guy? And they all kind of slowly just start to leave while I'm just losing my mind about baldness and the Chicago Cubs. Everyone leaves. Now, you have a choice at this moment because I've just ruined your party. I've just cost you an enormous amount of money, a public shame, You have one of two choices. Either you can make me pay you back for all all that I've taken from you or you can absorb the cost yourself. So when, when God says Jesus is a propitiation, what he's saying is, you know, I made a pretty good world. Had amazing things in it, oceans and mountains and streams and peaches and apples, whatever your fruit is. And you just wrecked it. You made it about yourself. You went around harming people, saying whatever came to mind, just doing whatever you wanted to do. And now there is a wake of damage behind you and the way you've lived your life. And God had two basic choices to humanity when we did that. Choice one is make us pay him back for all of it. Choice two is he could absorb the cost himself. And that's what happened on the cross is Jesus absorbs that cost into himself because there's no forgiveness without cost, someone paying it, so that God could look at you and I and now say, if, if you come to me in the name of Jesus, I have no heart of revenge towards you. There's no, I'm revoking it. Jesus has absorbed that cost. So that is God's position towards us. That we've ruined God's perfect world with our bitterness, our selfishness, our injustices, our violence. And rather than making us all pay, he sent his son into the world. And so in order for you to love well, you will have to absorb an enormous amount of wrongs done throughout your life. That's why sometimes the closest people are the hardest for us to love because we have to absorb The wrong's done to us. And without any absorption of wrong, without revoking revenge, you can't love. Love requires revoking revenge. And then third and finally, uh, love gives good gifts. Uh, Dan Ellender writes, Love's intention is to destroy the arrogance and ugliness in the beloved soul in order to enhance their God-given beauty. So we see the God-given beauty in another person. And then we see them, you know, doing what I was doing at the party. Throwing tables over, getting angry, all of that. We see that and we think, that's not who God made them to be. And I desire to see who God made them to be come out. And so I'm going to think of whatever good gift I can give to help them become that kind of person. Right? love then is, it's not about... I'm going to tell you what I think. Love is not, uh, I'm going to get some things off my chest. Love is what is the gift you need to abandon the, the way you're living that is not good, to embrace the God-given beauty made in the image of God that you are. How, how, does, how do I, what can I give you to make that happen? So Allender writes, um, I'm advocating a view of love that is consistent with doing ultimate good for the other. There are times when a hard, painful rebuke is good. There are other times when it would crush a broken reed. There are moments when the gentle wind of encouragement deepens a resolve to live for God. There are, of course, other times when encouragement will be misheard as support for a direction that is deadly. Therefore, confrontation may be the kindest word possible. Love is the offer of a good gift that fits the circumstances, needs, and personal variables of the one being loved so again loving someone else requires looking at them and saying what do they need to embrace the way of Jesus and to feel God's deep love over their life Sometimes it's it's a it's a painful word other times it's not but the point is my heart is I'm becoming an expert in what they need not an expert in what I would like to say not an expert in getting some things off my chest. Having my way. No, love is I'm going to give what that soul needs so their God-given beauty can be enhanced. So that's how you love well. You give good gifts, you revoke your revenge, and you hunger for restoration. That feels impossible for all of us, right? That, how many of us, like that's our automatic response to life, to anyone who harms us? It's like no one. So then, how would being a part of a community like this, if we embrace the way of Jesus, how would that change us? Um, and I want to say two things to that. How being a part of a Christian community should change, change us into being a person of love. First, is that forgiving others when they wound us changes us. When we forgive others, it is a powerful act. But I do want to pause because it's important. I think Christians sometimes miss the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. See, love does hunger for restoration, but restoration requires repentance on the part of the one that you're seeking restoration with. And so, I think of a conversation I had a few years ago with a, a, a leader in a church, and they had had lied and wounded someone in my own uh, congregation. And so, I, I just I had a, we had a confronting conversation. And in hindsight, I did not approach that the way that I should. My heart was not Giving good gifts in totality, um, but it was still, hey, you've you've lied, you've wounded someone else, and I remember the moment the conversation, just saying to him, "You're hurting people," and his immediate response was, "I don't care." So what do you do with that guy? Right, you don't you don't say, "Hey, come in," like I want to start an accountability group, and I'd love for you to be a part of it with me, and. And also there's some like young Christians, I think you should disciple them and like really pour your heart into their life. No, like that person has to be treated differently than someone who, when I come to them and say, hey, I think you've wounded me or you've wounded this person. And they say, oh no, forgive me. How can I seek restoration? The person who doesn't care has to be treated differently than everyone else. And so this is how Dan Allender unpacks that. Reconciliation is not to be extended to someone who is not repented. Forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but does not lend money until repentance occurs. A forgiving heart opens the door to any who knock, but entry into the home, that is the heart, does not occur until the muddy shoes and dirty coat have been taken off. The offender must repent if true intimacy and reconciliation are ever to take place. That means that cheap forgiveness, peace at any cost that sacrifices honesty, integrity, and passion, is not true forgiveness. And so forgiveness is you do not have to pay the debt that is owed. I'm releasing you from that. And my heart towards you now is I've revoked revenge and I want to only give you what is good that will enhance the beauty of God in you. That doesn't mean reconciliation because that person has to respond in order for there to be reconciliation. And so I love the illustration of the person who doesn't care, who is indifferent to the harm that they've caused you or others, well, they can, they can hang out on your front porch, but they can't come into the house yet, right? The muddy shoes have to come off. The dirty coat has to be removed until they show a sign that, that they're they they are trustworthy with your soul, There has to be a boundary. There has to be a difference. So, when I say forgive, I'm not saying be everyone's best friend. It's just not possible in this life. There are people who are not responsive when their sin harms other people, and those people have to be treated differently, still with love and forgiveness, yes, but with wisdom and discernment also. Forgiveness is I release the debt that you owe to me, I revoke revenge, I'll give you good gifts. But there's a boundary now, the front porch. And yet, I want to say, even even when that's true, there's still a power in coming to a place where you desire to give good gifts to someone who has harmed you. Or there is incredible power in forgiving someone and entering into the reconciliation process when they've harmed you. And yet again, so often, that just doesn't happen in the church. We never talk about it, we never lay it out, and we never share with one another that space where forgiveness could be possible. So that's, that's first. But second, being forgiven when we wound others changes us. You will harm other people and wound them because we're sinners. So when someone else comes to you and says, you know, I've experienced you in a way that, that really was hurtful to me, as Christians, our first response should not be surprise or shock No way I would ever sin against anyone. I mean, yes, I confessed I was a sinner who led to the death of Jesus Christ, the the perfect son of God, like he got brutally murdered because of my life. However, the idea that I would ever have done anything wrong to you is totally impossible. And while I'm laying on heavy sarcasm in this moment, I would say the dominant responses of Christians I've heard when they've been confronted is that, not what I think should be the two automatic responses of the Christian when we're confronted in our sin, which is first, I'm sorry. I mean, how many of us, someone sits us down and they name something with us and we know instantly it's, it's true. But instead of just saying that and feeling the freedom to say that in that moment, we, we defend ourselves, we create excuses. Well, these three things happened and then I acted that way. Or we, we start going into their stuff. Well, actually, do you know what you did to me? Which is all, that's fair, but irrelevant currently. What about this thing that's on the table right now? And what if in this community we just had the freedom to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me, I sinned. The second response you, you might have, because there will be times uh, someone might bring something to you that initially feels a little unfair. Like, I don't know if that's a sin. I don't, I don't know if that's a repentance thing uh, quite yet. But the response then is, is not that. It's, well, I don't think I did anything wrong. But instead to say, okay, help me understand. Because Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all else, which means the people who will have a best read on your brokenness is not you. It's other people. So whenever someone brings something to you, just because you don't see it in the moment doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it doesn't need to be brought to your attention. So instead of immediately saying, you're wrong, or I don't think so, it's help me understand. You see something in me that I don't see, and I want to understand it. And then listen well. Become an expert in what they're saying to you in that moment. Because when you... When you have the experience of acknowledging your own sin before another person and experience forgiveness, it then frees you up the next time to do the same thing. And it becomes the normal part of the rhythm of church and not the exception. So I would just ask, how are you doing in forgiving and being forgiven? This is why I started by saying love is not best described by four men writing a song who are about to sue one another. They don't have great advice. Love is best described by Jesus, the gospel, who himself embodied hungering for restoration, revoking revenge, and giving good gifts. So how are you doing on that front? That love, ultimately what I'm saying, requires being a forgiving person, laying down your preferences and rights, and confession of our sins. Love is not matching heart pillows with our initials on it. Love is I forgive you. Love is I sinned against you. I'm sorry. Love is my rights have been laid down. How can I serve you? How can I give something good to you? Um, and so a few weeks ago, I, uh, I, me and John were on stage, and we, we invited you all to ask uh, uh, three questions um, together. We're, we're entering into a really significant season of, of liberty as a church, Um, we are beginning the process of identifying and defining uh, who our next worship leader will be and what the parameters of that should look like. Uh, Secondly, we are within the next month or two going to be showing you renderings for buildings, what we hope to do with our our buildings. And here's the deal, like no one, there is no chance of 100% agreement on any of that. I'm not naive. And I don't, what I don't want is agreement. What I want is us to love one another through all that. Which is why I said, please pray through three questions, right, John and I, three questions. And I hope you've been doing that. If you haven't, that's okay. I hope you'll start today. Um, But the three questions were, what can I give? Right, church is not, hey, I'm here to be given to, so give me something. It's, It's, I'm here to Give what the Spirit has, has offered to me to love the people around me. Second, who can I bring? There's so many people who know who don't know Jesus. I love the way our elder chick Nick, uh, uh, our elder chair Nick, not our elder chick Nick. That was weird. <laughs> I can't wait to tell him I said that this morning. Uh, what he said is, if every non-Christian came to church next week, we don't have enough seats in all our buildings, in all the churches in Chesterton and Valpo, Laporte, beyond. So many people need Jesus, so who can we bring? And then the third question, and this is, this is where love comes in, is uh, where does Jesus need to work on me? Where does my agenda trump his, triumph over his? And as I said, what's, what's key moving forward is not having great answers to those questions, but just loving people, one another, through all of that. And I just want to invite an, a, one more possible response. I just want you to know... In my own my own understanding of what pastoral ministry is, there there is never a question that's off limits. I'm trying to increase the skill of the answer. I don't know because there's a lot of things I don't know. So that might be the answer. The answer might be I can't quite go into that yet, um, or I'll I'll tell you if I know. But I just want you to know, as we move into a lot of questions and a lot of decisions that we're trying to enter into well with the elders and the staff, John and I, just want you to know, there's never a question you can't ask that won't be honored in your own humanness, in your own questions and wrestling. Every question matters, so please don't hesitate to ask them. Because that's what loving well is, right? I have a question, so I'm going to bring it to the person who can answer it. And then the person who receives the question says, I'm going to give you the best response I can out of love towards you. Because as Jesus said, the way you and I will be, the way his mission will be known as true is not with great worship services. It's not with great preaching. It's not with great uh, discipleship programs. It's how Christians love one another. When the gospel gets embodied in the interpersonal relationships between fellow believers, it's such a compelling difference to the world that the world will see that and say, Jesus is who he said he was. Because it's, it, it is hard to look at another person and say, when, when you, they're saying, you've hurt, you've hurt me, you've wounded me. It's hard to say, I'm sorry. It's hard to forgive another person when, you've, when they've wounded you. All of that's really hard. And so the question becomes, how do you get the power to do that? And so I want to end by saying, before you ever try and go love anybody, first, let Jesus love you. And I mean that whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you've never been a Christian yet. Before you try to go love anybody, love, let Jesus love you first. Because it's really hard to say, I'm sorry, if you don't know, the other person won't abandon you once you've acknowledged your fault. It's really hard to forgive another person to say, I will not hold the debt against you without thinking, well, they just keep harming me again and again. And again, it's hard to lay down your rights, to give up your preferences for other people. Because if you give up your rights, who will look out for you? Who will make sure you have what you need in the end. And how, I mean, just think through Jesus' responses to all of those. Right, before you ever try and go love anyone, first hear Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Before he even dead, he's forgiving us. You can say I'm sorry to him. You can confess your sins before him. His response each time will be you're forgiven. Watch him lay down his rights for you. The Son of God, giving up the riches of heaven, to be killed ruthlessly in a public way on a cross, to absorb all of the wrongs we have done to him, laying down his rights so he can speak authoritatively, I forgive you for everything that you have done. Then, watch you invite him back to his table to say to us, I know you don't really believe that I love you yet. You're still afraid to say, I'm sorry, I confess, I'm a sinner. So here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood poured out for you. And for the rest of your days, I want you back at my table again and again and again to hear those things. So someday you'll actually believe, I love you. And you don't don't need to fear saying I'm sorry ever again. His table is defined by... Forgiveness, the son of God who laid down his life for us and a table surrounded by people whose fundamental confession every time we come to the the table is, I failed God, but he has paid the cost to love me, which makes me his beloved child, welcome at his table. Feels like we should do that. Practice that together. Um, so we have communion down front, four tables up front, there's one um, up in the back, where if you are a Christian, if you're in the way of Jesus, the only way you come down is if you acknowledge first you have failed God. You're not the person that you're supposed to be or should have been, but that secondly you're confessing Jesus has absorbed that cost and I am welcome at his table through his body broken, his blood shed for, for me. If you're not yet a Christian, that's our confession, and we'd love to talk to you about how to make it yours. I'll be in the hallway after um, service. But what I want to do, I'm going to pray for us, and then if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, come to the table, gather with fellow sinners, five to seven uh, in a group, take the bread, dip it into the juice, and wait to eat it together um, at the instruction of those serving you as we come to his table. Let me pray. Father, in the next few minutes, many of us in this room will eat at your table. May we not take that for granted. What, what a gospel. That Jesus dies for us, forgives us, and then with open arms has us at his table. God, may we experience that love you have for us as real now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.